Listen up, lovers of watches, design, and history. This November, Jeje Le Coutre invites visitors to discover the world of its legendary reverso through a richly immersive exhibition, which just opened yesterday set in the heart of New York City. To mark the 90th anniversary of the Maison's iconic timepiece, Reverso Stories landed in Paris, Shanghai, and Seoul. Now the exhibition comes to Manhattan for its North American debut. With its remarkable legacy of art deco architecture and style, New York is a particularly fitting setting for the celebration of the Reverso's art deco origins. Located at Iron 23, the exhibition will run through November 22nd, just ahead of the grand opening of Gégère Le Coutre's new flagship boutique on Madison Avenue. A fascinating retrospective that leads visitors through Nine decades of timeless modernity, Reverso Stories reveals the craftsmanship, innovation, and design behind this celebrated timepiece, and also explores the wider creative and cultural universe surrounding it. For more information, visit ejure-lecoutre.com. Happy Saturday. It's November 4th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail whose hearts and minds are firmly in the Middle East. We've got a lot to talk about today on that front and some really thoughtful and provocative voices who are going to help illuminate us on not only the situation, but how Americans are interpreting it. It's a terrific show. Very thoughtful. And first, we've got Gen Zers and millennial progressives have grown up agreeing on where they stand on everything socially and politically. But now with the fighting in Israel and Gaza, they find themselves bitterly divided. And Kat Rosenfield will join us to talk about how the conflict has become the first wedge issue for those under 40. Then, Mickey Rapkin has a report on how a slew of filmmakers, himself included, from Steve McQueen to Jonathan Glazer, are trying to figure out how, in the midst of this devastating conflict, they should talk about their forthcoming Holocaust projects. And finally, Linda Wells will be here. Linda, as you know, is the editor of Airmail Look, our health and beauty vertical, which just published a new issue this week. And Linda will tell us everything we need to know about looking great this fall, beginning with our hands. And if you're getting ready, like I am, for the new season of The Crown, Linda will reveal the inside story on the man who Princess Diana trusted above so many others. Who is he? You'll want to find out. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? We are going to get to the heart of the matter, the war in the Middle East. And Kat Rosenfield is here to tell us all about how Gen Z is interpreting the goings on. Kat's the author of several books, including No One Will Miss Her and a frequent contributor to Airmail. We're very happy to have her and welcome Kat. Thanks for having me. Kat, your story was so provocative and thoughtful in so many ways. One of the lines stuck with me most is when you write that Americans under 25 have only ever known Israel as the seat for Netanyahu's increasingly far-right regime. I think I underestimated the understanding gap between Gen Z and older generations of Americans in terms of their experience with Israel. How can you make sense of this for us? I mean, I don't think it's just about their experience of Israel. Obviously, they have only known an Israel that's run by a far-right figure, which you have to consider that also against the context of what kind of government, if we're talking about American young people, they've known here at home. Like for them, the Donald Trump administration is their probably first and most formative experience with a right-wing 
government. And it's interesting because we call it an understanding gap, but it's also like a perspective thing. They don't know what they don't know. Their experience of the world is what it is. And it's obviously limited by the fact that they haven't been around as long as somebody who's lived through the peace talks between Obama and and Israel and Palestine, or who was alive even longer than that, who really understands the history of that region and how volatile it's been through the context of having kind of like seen it happening, like seen it unfold in real time. For them, they've just had this one very narrow understanding of it that makes it very, very easy to demonize Israel and to see it as the bad guy because this is the other piece of things. Amongst people, particularly under 25, there's this very particular framework for understanding virtually everything. It's this decolonization narrative that casts Israel as an aggressor and an oppressor. They're like, the the Goliath up against their neighbor who is poorer and browner and has fewer resources and has been put upon their neighbor David. It's just seems very unfair through that lens. Kat, what I'm struck by is, as you note in your story this week, that this conflict has become really the first major, as you say, wedge issue among millennials and Gen Z progressives. And it's causing rifts in institutions, social groups, even individual households. And it's made it a very complex thing for people people navigate. So why is it causing this rift between the generations? Well, I think it's partly the thing that we just discussed, that people under 25 just have grown up in a different world than people who are older. I mean, one of the things that struck me in talking to people for this piece was how surprised so many of them were to discover that it was a wedge issue. I spoke to this artist, Patrick Smith, who I think had really felt up until now that anti-Semitism was a problem exclusively on the right and was just jolted and horrified when he discovered how deep-seated some of this hatred is on the left, not just towards Israel specifically, but towards Jews at large. There's this sense of people having indulged in these sort of conspiracy theories or these stereotypes that Jews are an oppressor, that they've sort of pulled a darvo. They were victimized, but now they're doing the same thing to others that was done to them. And because they're in a position of such kind of discrete power and control that they're able to do that. So I think the shock of discovering how many people actually do believe in some version of this fairly noxious stereotype has been really an eye opener for a lot of people. You interviewed a lot of people in your story, Kat, who didn't want to go on the record using their names. Can you explain a little bit about the thinking behind that? I think that's just a function of the culture that we're living in right now. You can call it cancel culture or whatever you want to call it. We are in a moment where it's seen as very hazardous to stick your neck out, to say what you think and to attach your name and identity to it. I fully understand why many people did not want to attach their names to their comments because like for better or for worse right now the norm is if you see somebody saying something that you find offensive or provocative there's a certain contingent of people on both sides who their first impulse and their first action is to go and figure out where that person works and try to get them fired from their job doesn't sound especially productive for creating a thoughtful and meaningful discourse around a tricky topic but anyway can you talk a little bit about tiktok cat and about how TikTok is being used as sort of a search engine to get information on politics. And what do you make of all of that? Yeah, speaking of a lack of thoughtful discourse, this was, I think, one of the most interesting revelations that I uncovered in reporting this piece is 
how the discourse functions on TikTok and what purpose it actually serves. So Gen Z is obviously on TikTok a lot. What is interesting about them is that they don't just use it as a place to post their own ideas. They also use it as a place to figure out what to think. They use it as a search engine. And that is generally not an issue. Like if you're looking to find out what kind of toothbrush to buy or you're looking for a kind of music you should listen to. If you're trying to use it as a lens for understanding geopolitics, especially an issue as complex as this one, it does not lead itself or lend itself to a great deal of deep understanding. Instead, there's this very sort of surface level kind of point scoring dynamic that emerges. And one of the people that I spoke to for this piece, Lee Stein, who's an author and a sort of an expert on TikTok, she explained to me that TikTok is basically, it's a distillation of this dynamic that kind of rules across the internet. It's all about fandom. People go on there to score points for whatever team they're a fan of and to see their rival humiliated. And you have to understand whatever discourse is happening surrounding political issues on TikTok, it has to be understood as happening in that framework. It's really not about understanding what is happening. In many cases, people don't actually care at all what the facts are. Kat, I think that links up with another really great insight you have in your story. And I'd like to hear you amplify and talk more about it. But you say this kind of escalating radicalization, as you call it, on both sides is often a byproduct of what happens in societies when the older and more experienced abdicate their authority to the young and in times of political turmoil. Can you talk about that? Sure. That's a dynamic that I think we've seen reproduced pretty much throughout history. It's something where you have a moment where things are unsettled, where you have a radical notion of how things should be, like a radical political ideology or even like a sort of general ethos for how life should be lived that takes hold amongst young people and is very intimidating to older people. There's this sense of they've figured something out that we should have known that we don't know. And I've seen this playing out amongst, I would say, Gen Xers and even elder millennials within the past few years in the culture space where I do most of my writing. There was suddenly this thing, I want to say, like, especially around the Me Too movement, you would see people posting these articles, writers in their 30s and 40s posting these articles saying, like, I spoke to a bunch of 15-year-old high school students about consent, and they have so much to teach us. The 15-year-olds have so much to teach us about sex and consent. And it was like, this is facially incredibly ludicrous to the point of being actually funny. You have a bunch of people who've never experienced this thing, but who are nevertheless being looked to as authorities on it because they think about it in a very black and white simplistic way. But when you reproduce that dynamic kind of at a population level and you make it the way that you understand so many issues, it makes it very hard to break this sort of cycle of radicalization. Everybody gets very entrenched in thinking about things like a teenager, which is to say in this very Manichaean, black and white, good and evil, and in this case, oppressor, oppressed kind of way. And then there's increasingly no room for nuance, no room for understanding. If somebody tries to inject subtlety into one of these conversations, the result is one of these, well, which side are you on? You're either with us or against us ultimatums that really shuts down any kind of meaningful debate. Yeah, as I think that point regarding TikTok, it's either 
fandom or anti-fandom, and on this point it's also, as you say, the adults, they're actually afraid of youth and they want to be on the side of youth. And so, again, the abdication of responsibilities there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, don't cancel me, please. I'll say whatever you think. But in doing that, I think it certainly makes the discourse, I don't necessarily want to say stupider, but that's kind of it. It just makes it very shallow and it does not lead to, I think, either like meaningful solutions or even meaningful understanding of the issues. Kat, thanks for a great story. This was really illuminating on very many levels and really thoughtful. And thank you for putting yourself out there and saying it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Fascinating stuff, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, fascinating and eye-opening as well. And it sort of dovetails with our next guest, Mickey Rapkin, who is a writer and also has a new movie out that he directed. Gets to the heart of how you reach Generation Under 35 about the Holocaust. He's done a film called The Anne Frank Gift Shop, which he will tell us all about. But it looks at how you reach this generation, some of whom have no idea that certain moments in history actually existed and actually happened. Mickey Robkin is a marvelous writer. He was a magazine writer at GQ for many years. He was also the author of the memoir Pitch Perfect, which went on to become the television series. His new film is called The Anne Frank Gift Shop, and it's all about telling an important story of a Holocaust to an audience that might not be as familiar with it as perhaps they should be. We're very happy to have Mickey here with us. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you for having me. So, Mickey, tell us about your new film, The Anne Frank Gift Shop, and why you made it. Yes, The Anne Frank Gift Shop. It is a dark comedy, a very dark comedy that imagines a meeting between the Anne Frank house and the New York design firm they've hired to help them renovate the gift shop to appeal to young people. Very dark premise that grew out of a very real problem, which was this study from a couple of years ago that showed... Two-thirds of young Americans could not tell you how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. 11% of these respondents somehow believe Jews caused the Holocaust. So the film is sort of a way to continue to tell this story and disarm young people with a comedic language they understand so that we can hit them with this emotional appeal. So Mickey, tell us about the day in Los Angeles when the tote bags arrived at your house that were emblazoned with the face of Anne Frank. What else happened in the world that day? Yes. Very dark moment in time. And here's another dark comedic story. Yeah, the sort of on October 7th, the day that war broke out, that Hamas launched this sort of terrible attack, killing Jewish people. A box arrived at my house on 70 canvas tote bags with Anne Frank's face on them. This was not a hate crime. I had actually ordered these Anne Frank tote bags to be gift bags at an event I was doing in a few weeks for my film, Los Angeles. It was just a sort of very dark, sad moment. Obviously, nothing about me, me and the tote bag, nothing, but just a sort of dark moment to open this box of and be reminded of these horrors while fresh horrors were unfolding. This experience piqued one of the primary questions of your story, which is, as you say, there's no wrong way to talk about the Holocaust, but is there a wrong time? Where have you landed on that? Yeah, I think there's certainly not a wrong time. As one of the characters in the film says, we have to keep telling this story again and again and again, every which way we can or it will happen again. Schindler's List was 30 years ago. The Spielberg masterpiece about the Holocaust, and that film really shocked people with images. And I think now we're at a time where young people are entirely desensitized to images. The scientists called empathy fatigue. These kids have access to horrors in their pockets on their phones 24 hours a day. So in a way, the film, it does ask this question, is there a wrong way to talk about the Holocaust? 
which we're saying there's not. We're using this comedic language to shock young people so that we can disarm them and then hit them with the emotional appeal of the film, which is that we have to keep telling this story. And I think there's so many people right now trying to tell this story in new ways. There's this Jonathan Glazer movie, Zone of Interest, that's coming out in December, which is about the very mundane life of an SS officer and his wife who lived on the other side of the wall next to Auschwitz. And it's really just about the wife complaining about having to move and the kids are playing in the yard and the swimming pool. And people always ask themselves, like, how could these people sleep at night? Like, if you were a Nazi soldier, how could you? It turns out they slept quite well as long as their wife was happy in their home. But it's just another way to tell the horror of this story. We've talked a little bit recently about, as you know, it's TikTok generation where they see images, how they get stories told to them. And I think about the inventiveness of your movie. And then I think about Art Spiegelman doing Mouse, which was 25 or whatever years ago. And that was revolutionary for its time, a graphic novel treatment of the Holocaust and Auschwitz. Which is now getting banned. Mouse is like one of the big banned books. Right. It brought that story to a generation where it lived, which I think, as you say, to note, how do you get the story in front of people when there's a sizable percentage of people under 25 who have no knowledge of it? So it's that struggle, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we're constantly talking about that. I shared my film with the actual Anne Frank house. And of course, I was very nervous. Like, are they going to laugh at these jokes? Someone pitches an escape room. There's rough jokes in this movie. And the Anne Frank house acknowledged, for one, they thought the movie was funny, which was a relief. But also they acknowledged that these are conversations and struggles that they're having internally about how to reach Gen Z and millennials with this story. It's a constant struggle, especially as every year there are less and less survivors alive. It's really scary, especially in this rampant age of misinformation. What do we do? We have to safeguard ourselves for a time when there will be no eyewitness. Mickey, for those who want to see the Anne Frank gift shop, I know you've seen it. It's been at festivals. It's won some awards at festivals. It's now screening for Academy Award consideration. Where can people see it? We've got a handful of events coming up in November at the Weizmann Center in Philadelphia. There's a big talk next week at the Holocaust Museum in Toronto. But hopefully it'll be streaming more widely very soon because we feel in this moment now more than ever that the story needs to be out there. It needs to be told. And we want to get it in front of as many eyeballs as we can. Well, Mickey, thank you so much for this great story and for telling us all about the process of promoting this film and how fraught and complex it can be. But most of all, thank you for this great film. I've seen it. It's wonderful. I hope everyone else enjoys it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Since 1833, Jejar Lecouch has expressed its inventive spirit through the creation of many world firsts, including the legendary patented swiveling case of the Reverso watch. This timeless expression of Art Deco style was born in 1931 on the polo fields of India, with the idea of a case that could be flipped over to protect the watch while playing the sport of kings. With its revolutionary design and immaculate craftsmanship, the Reverso was immediately embraced by trendsetters from all walks of life, quickly transcending its original purpose and, over the decades, becoming widely recognized as an icon of 20th century design. At a new exhibition, Reverso Stories, the story of Reverso is told in four chapters. The story of an icon, style and design, innovation, and craftsmanship work together to reveal how the Reverso has become a canvas for artistic expression and personalized messages. And don't forget to stop by the 1931 Cafe and enjoy delicacies designed by award-winning French pastry chef Nina Mateo. The Reverso Stories exhibition is open through November 22nd at Iron 23, located at 29 West 23rd Street in New York. Entry is open to the public and free of charge. 
Michael, I like how this segment was like kind of a bit of a recommended as well as a thought-provoking conversation. You get it all here on Morning Meeting. You do get it all here on Morning Meeting, including you and Linda Wells taking us into other matters, health and wellness, mental, physical, and all those things. And we've got a new issue of Airmail Look, which you guys have released this week. And Linda's got her new column in this week's issue, right? Linda's been very busy, but that's exactly how she likes it, Linda. We see you and we love you for who you are. Linda's the editor of Airmail Look. She is a columnist for Beauty and Wellness at Airmail, and she also was the founding editor of Allure, a position that she held for 25 years. She is, in short, an icon, and we're thrilled to have her here. Welcome, Linda. I'm so happy to be here, Ashley and Michael. Okay, Linda, we have to start with your Look From Here column this month about the most revealing marker of age. Yes, the hands. We overwork them with the typing and the texting and the sun exposure, but they are some sort of a truth teller. Yes, they are like rings on a tree, I'm sorry to say, and I never look at mine unless I happen to and then I kind of want to scream because it's not a good thing. But there are now everyone's turning their attention to them and dermatologists are realizing that you can do injections in the hands and there are actually two injectable fillers that are approved by the FDA for the hands and they make the hands look kind of plump. And one Dr. Ellen Marmer told me about how she injects the fingers. So little tiny injections along the length of the finger so that they look a less kind of like Nosferatu. <laughs> I mean, sign me up. What do we need? Yeah, I guess. Right. Is there anything that we can do for those sunspots and like other markers of age? Like, do we need to walk through the world wearing gloves? Well, it wouldn't hurt you. And there are SPF 50 gloves that you can wear. And I have friends who wear them all the time when they're driving, when they're out paddleboarding, walking the dog, whatever they happen to be doing. But there are sunscreens for the hands. And that's really just the thing you must do. Basic, put on a sunscreen. And there are specific ones for the hands that have a little bit more grip because the problem with putting on sunscreen with the hands is you wash your hands, you rub your hands, it comes off and you have to reapply. And then there are retinol products. Like you say, there are new hand retinol products that are perfect for getting rid of some of the crepiness and getting the collagen moving and getting rid of the redness and all those things. It's the same as for the face. Well, Linda, you've given us hope. We have to move on to one of my other favorite topics. Used to be my favorite sleep aid, Ambien. It turns out all was not what we thought it was. I know, Ambien. I mean, remember how I used to go to the fashion shows and it was just survival by Ambien. And it was a combination of Ambien and Espresso, one ping-ponging from the other. But there were so many bad stories and some of them are hilarious. Stories about people who had sleepwalking incidents, people driving in the middle of the night on Ambien. And I even had a friend who had an adjoining room at the Ritz in Paris back in the day when we had those crazy expense accounts. And she woke up in the morning surrounded by the entire contents of her mini bar emptied around her bed. So it was all the snacks that she ate in the nighttime. And I'm sure that added a good thousand euros to her bill. So it turns out that Ambien, everyone kind of got wise to the fact that Ambien is not the greatest panacea for sleep problems. And in fact, it doesn't really even give you a great sleep because it's sort of a kind of a pantomime of sleep. Your eyes are closed and you think you're asleep, but you're not getting any restful sleep. So the uses went down. And now the question is, what are we going to do to replace it? There are some new drugs in development. And then we also have everything else, the THC gummies, the 
CBD gummies, the mattresses, the cooling things, the special lights, the blackout shades. We can't seem to get enough of trying to figure out how to get a better sleep. So one gentleman who is not getting nearly enough sleep is the poet Jim Barrel, who is a self-professed OnlyFans super fan. I mean, this is a corner of the universe that we were so curious about. We sort of didn't want to know what was lurking underneath, but Jim has enlightened us. He certainly has. He is an OnlyFans fan, and my familiarity with OnlyFans is simply what I read in the New York Post. It's always this police officer or this teacher at some school was discovered to have an OnlyFans account and got fired. And it seems like that's sort of a regular scandal in the Post. But it is a kind of porn site where you pay a certain subscription fee and then you can watch porn in various levels and interactions. Presumably some of it can be made just for you and some of their, their live streaming with comments and things like that. Anyway, this poet discovers OnlyFans and decides to pony up the $20 monthly fee because you can get porn free, I've heard. And then he finds one person to follow that he runs into in real life. So it has a whole different kind of frisson, excitement, whatever you want to call it. Ladies, can I get in on this? Michael, we need to hear from you on this subject. I'm just going in a completely different direction. I'm going to go a little classier because one of the stories, I'm not watching porn. I'm more excited about the return of the crown and a story that you have about a man named Sam McKnight who seemed to be the power behind Princess Diana. I love that story. Okay, good. Thank you for cleaning it up and raising the level. <laughs> we can count on you for that, Michael. So Sam McKnight is one of the great hairdressers of all time. I met him in the 80s while we were on a shoot and he had this hand of something that no one had heard of before. And it was hair mousse, the first hair mousse that came from France. And we were all just entranced by this. But Sam was the hairstylist to Princess Diana for seven years until her death and was brought into the project by Patrick de Marcelier. And it was sort of done in secret. He was at a studio and was told that someone important was coming and he would be doing the hair. And he wasn't told who that important person was. And he thought it was going to be Margaret Thatcher. So imagine two more different people than Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana, hair-wise and in every other way. So he got her to cut her hair short and make it look more relaxed and tousled. And all that seems superficial, unless you're me, which it seems like was the most important thing in the world. But it really did say a lot about her warmth and approachability. It conveyed a lot about this kind of new princess and what she meant to the crown and to the country. And it was just something very touchable almost. She seemed attainable or seemed approachable. You're right. It's not the Margaret Thatcher showing up where you've got to get 42 cans of Aquanet for her hair. He created that sort of layered, tousled look. And it was a whole different look for a royal, right? Exactly. And it really gave her a kind of modernity that I think people were really excited about. And when she appeared at an event with Liz Tilberis, who was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar at the time, and there was this New York event, the CFDA Awards, and she had on slick back hair. It was sort of wet look. And that caused all these headlines. And I know that people, I can get a little carried away with these things because it's hair, but it really gave people a sense of this liberation of this woman and the youthfulness and freedom that she had, or at least in theory had. Of course, she didn't have it. But so Sam really created all those looks for her and they had such a close relationship. He cut the hair of Princes William and Harry when they would kind of wander in. So there was just this really like almost like a family warmth and closeness that they had. You mean William and Harry back when they still had hair? Yes, they did have hair. Okay, just yeah. For those just tuning in, I just want to remind them. And, and you know what else I loved about Sam? 
He worked with Lady Gaga for a year. And remember the meat dress that she had? Well, he was responsible for putting the stake in on her head, pinning that stake in. <laughs> oh, my God. And he tells about all the flies surrounding everything. It just sounds absolutely revolting. Linda, my last question for both of you. We've talked about the hands and the hair. And the other thing it seems that now there are new rules for, as you guys identify, Linda, is teeth. There is such a thing as too perfect a smile now, right? You've seen it too, haven't you, Michael? That, wow. Oh, yeah. I love this story because I've been watching people's mouths and I'm like, this is all wrong. So please enlighten us all. So this is a story in airmail and it's about teeth and it's about the pervasiveness of the porcelain veneer. There is not a celebrity around that I can think of that doesn't have perfect porcelain veneers. But the question is, perfection is the problem. They can be too white and too aligned. And then that starts to feel really fake and sort of distracting. The teeth can be too big. And so there are a couple of really very almost artistic dentists. I think of them as kind of couturiers who create these veneers that are very subtle and really beautiful and respond to the face. A lot of dentists don't think about the face structure and they're putting in the teeth and losing sight of the whole picture. And so there's not an alignment, sort of a visual alignment and balance. It's an interesting thing. But once you know this, you will never be able to watch a movie again. Let's just name some names. You can't watch a presidential press conference because our Biden has them. You look at someone like Tom Cruise and you even note in your story this week, Taylor Swift went in for a little fine tuning, right? So these people, you can see it, but this is what I love. also love, you've got something called ozempic face as well, right? Right. Ozempic face. That's when people lose so much weight so quickly that their face becomes almost skeletal and their teeth look huge. And the dentist I spoke with about it said it's a real problem. And they said, but the issue is ordinarily the logical thing would be change the teeth. Okay, that's for $75,000. Great, great idea. But change the teeth. But he's, this dentist said he's not sure that these people will stay on his epic and maintain the weight loss, in which case you have to kind of wait it out. So yeah, that's an issue. It's like if you do any work to the face, if you get injections in your lips that can change the contour of your lips, which then makes your teeth look crooked. And so people go to their dentist and say, my teeth used to be straight and now they're crooked. And it's like, no, no, your lips are crooked. Your teeth are fine. So there are all these issues, but it is funny. I've been watching some movies from the 80s and 90s. People have totally different teeth. Or if you watch the David Beckham documentary, he has different teeth at the beginning than he does at the end. And one dentist told me he really would like to redo the current David Beckham teeth. So, And another dentist outrageously said he wanted to redo Julia Roberts' smile. And I thought, no, wait a second. If that isn't the world's best smile, tell me. And then he pointed out, now got this problem and that problem and I thought I give up. I conducted all the interviews as if I were a ventriloquist. Linda, you have nothing to feel self-conscious about. Your teeth are a work of art. Yeah, huh? And Linda, you always make us smile when you're on. <laughs> oh, you too. Love you both. Love you, Linda. Thank you for this. Thank you for this amazing issue. And if you want to read it in full, which you absolutely should, it's airmail.news backslash look. All right. Thanks, Linda. See you next time. Thank you. Okay, Michael, come on. It's the weekend. I need a distraction from reality. What do you have to recommend? Did you read the book, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr? I did. And I heard that the film adaptation was really good. Tell me. Or is it a TV series? It's a limited series on Netflix. For those of you who did not read it, it came out a few years ago. Big bestseller, won the Pulitzer. And it's a sweeping story set during World War II. Revolves around a blind French girl who takes refuge in her uncle's house in Saint-Malo after the Nazis take Paris. 
and she transmits these radio broadcasts and a young German soldier is tasked with finding her as the Allies are battling to take the town. And as you note, Ashley, it's now been made into a limited series starring Mark Ruffalo and a young woman named Aria Maria Loberti. I've watched the first episode and it's lush, powerful, intense and moving. I'm going to tune in for more. I'm a guy who doesn't binge. I take things one at a time and it's called All the Light We Cannot See and it is streaming on Netflix now. And you, my dear, what do you have for us? Well, I read a really unexpected but great book this weekend. Casey Schwartz had reviewed it in the New York Times Book Review, and it piqued my interest. It's called Brutalities, and the author is Margot Steins. And this is her first book. She's had quite a varied career. She started off in her 20s as a sex worker. She was a dominatrix working in a sex dungeon in New York. She became a professional welder, making some of the most high-profile buildings in New York City. Then she got her MFA in creative writing in Arizona. But it's really a book about the extremes that she went to to sort of discover the physical limits of her body and the amount of pain that her body could take. And it's the kind of book and subject matter that could easily veer into the category of pain porn, but it really wasn't that at all. It was incredibly thoughtfully written, provocative in all the right ways, really makes you think a lot about what the limits of our bodies are and how we treat them and what that says about who we are. Anyway, really wonderful book. It's called Brutalities by Margot Steins. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our sponsor, Gégère Le Coutre, and we look forward to seeing you all again next week. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe. Enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.